Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'm going to be reading uh, a little more than, than we'll be talking about this morning, but John 12, 9 through 26, and 31 through 33. Before we read that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and uh, we can only echo what we will read, uh, that this morning we wish to see Jesus. We pray that you, by your spirit, would show us Jesus in your word, uh, that we would, uh, as I think has already been said this morning, that we would feast on Jesus, that we would feed on him this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 12, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Very often, we have co-opted Jesus for our own personal agendas. People have this idea, if you can get Jesus on your side, uh, your side has that much more street cred. One pastor, uh, David Schrock, lists 10 cultural Jesuses. 
He talks about the therapeutic Jesus, soft and soothing, who helps you improve your self-esteem through positive thinking. And the life coach Jesus, who gives you the tips and tools to succeed in whatever you do. Or the Mr. Rogers version of Jesus, who loves kids, morality, and helping you do the right thing. Uh, the warrior Jesus, who's uber macho and can be confused with William Wallace or Jack Bauer. You get the point. Uh, there are all kinds of Jesuses in people's minds. And these examples are just that, examples. We could list dozens of other distortions of Jesus, everything from uh, enlightenment thinker to civil rights protester to present-day hipster. Everybody wants to remake Jesus in their image. Probably the biggest problem with this, apart from the idolatry itself, is how it confuses non-Christians about who Jesus really is. Who do you say that he is? Do you see Jesus for who he is or who he is presented to be by various segments of our culture or who you want him to be to shore up your own programs and purposes and pleasures? Well, in our text this morning, we meet quite a few people who are interact with Jesus, the crowds, the disciples, the chief priests and Pharisees, and some Greeks who appear on the scene for the first time. And they all have only one thing in common, and that one thing they have in common is that they don't yet see Jesus for who he is, though perhaps the Greeks come closest. Jesus is consistently misunderstood by the crowds, by the religious leaders, and even by his own disciples. And so we'll ask the question this morning and, and look at answers to the question from this text, who is Jesus? Is he just a wonder-working spectacle? Is he a nationalistic hero? Is he a bitter rival? Is he an enigmatic puzzle? No, in the end, he is the lifted up Lord. And each of the first four is a misunderstanding, and, and that, a misunderstanding that's seen in the people in Jesus' day, which is still around even now. And only when we see Jesus as the Lord who is lifted up will we come to see him for who he really is. And so first misunderstanding, Jesus as a wonder-working spectacle. You know, the Gospel of John, if you've been with us uh, uh, for a while, you know the Gospel of John is about signs. Uh, we see Jesus perform seven of them in the Gospel. He turns the water into wine in John 2. He heals an official son in John 4. He enables a layman to walk in John 5. He feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water. He restores sight to a blind man and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs. Uh, some believe on account of the signs in John. Some don't. Some tag along for a while, but, but move along once they get into the nitty-gritty of what Jesus teaches. And in John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, his most amazing sign yet. In John 11:45, we read, many of the Jews who had seen what he did believed in him. And now we read in John 12, 9, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus has raised Lazarus, and this was something, of course, that you wouldn't want to miss. And that, that wasn't wrong, uh, of course. When Jesus does something amazing, we should celebrate that and point people to his power and majesty, but it's pretty clear that the crowds, though they hear about the sign and they believe in Jesus because of the sign, they, they don't get it. In fact, in just a few days, they will be crying out, crucify him. 
They don't yet understand who Jesus is. They are coming for the show. Jesus for them is a spectacle to behold, a wonder worker, a miracle man. Verse 17 tells us the crowd that saw Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness to what they saw, which is why these crowds gather. In John 4, Jesus rebuked a man saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And what we see in John is that the signs, they, they feed genuine faith, but where there is no genuine faith, they feed only our desire for spectacle, for a show, for excitement, a desire which is as fickle as it is real. For the crowds, Jesus raising a dead man is as good as Jesus dying on the cross. One spectacle is as good as another. And let me ask, right, do you, do you need the spectacular in order to believe? And do you come to church for a spectacle, whether that spectacle is the, the spectacle of a high church liturgy or of a mega church light show? Are you hanging on, just waiting for a miracle? Are you looking for the touchy feelies, right? A tingling sensation down your spine, a, a coincidence that you can hold on to as a sign of God's presence, presence? Do you need Jesus to be a wonder worker in your life in order to believe? Well, let me say, that's, that's not why Jesus came. Oh, he will make all things new on the last day. And every time someone comes to Christ, we witness the miracle of regeneration, the Spirit's life-giving work in the sinner's dead heart. But Jesus didn't come to put on a light show. He didn't come to amaze and delight. He didn't come to send shivers down your spine. And if that's what you're looking for, then you're not looking for Jesus, and you won't find him there. Is Jesus merely a wonder-working spectacle? No. What about a nationalistic hero? At this point, many people have come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Verse 12 says, uh, there's a large crowd that had come that heard that Jesus was on his way. And so they take palm branches and they go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus rides in on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And Jesus is clearly riding into Jerusalem as king. He who comes in the name of the Lord was a phrase that referred to the Messiah. And if it wasn't clear, the people add, even the king of Israel. Even the donkey was a kingly reference. Oh, it did mean that Jesus was coming in humility We'll come back to that. But it was a kingly humility, a, a prophecy about Judah, from which, uh, which tribe King David came, implies that he rides a donkey, Genesis 49, and, and Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Solomon rode a beast of burden through Jerusalem when he was anointed king. And so Jesus is pictured here as the heir of Solomon. Of course, the Zechariah prophecy says it outright, verse 15, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as king, and the people get that much. They get it, and they don't get it. You see, they don't understand what it means that Jesus is king. When they tried to make him king by force back in John chapter 6, Jesus ran and hid in the mountains. The clue that they don't get it actually may be the palm branches, Palm branches were a, a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, but this was not the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the Feast of Passover. And however, they, uh, the, the symbol of palm branches had become a national symbol. 
According to the commentary, psalms were imp- uh, palms were imprinted on the coins struck by the insurgents during the Jewish wars against Rome. And so the, the palm symbol was a symbol of the nation of Israel. The palm branches show the crowd's nationalistic hopes for Jesus. They want him to come and restore the kingdom, that is the kingdom of national Israel. But we must be clear, right, that this is not the purpose of Jesus. He did not come to restore a national Israel. I'm not making a political statement by saying that, but I am making an important theological statement. Jesus' purposes today, then and now, are not limited to any one nation, whether Israel or America or any other nation under heaven. Jesus' purposes are for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Israeli and Palestinian both need the gospel. They both need to see Jesus for who he is, as do I and as do you. But at times, Jesus has been co-opted for nationalistic purposes, hasn't he? Right? Do you hope that Jesus will come and fulfill your hopes and your dreams for your nation? Do you hope you can co-opt Jesus into the American dream in securing America's future? Do you want Jesus to support your cause, right? your political agenda, your political party, your political platform? He did not come to weigh in on the side of this nation or that nation. He came for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So is Jesus a wonder-working spectacle? No. Is he a nationalistic hero? No. What about a bitter rival? The religious leaders are not happy. They know the miracles happened just as well as anyone else, but they don't care about the spectacle and they are afraid of what might happen if Jesus announces his campaign for Israel's king. Back in chapter 11:48, they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they don't see Jesus as the best hope for their nation. They see Jesus as a threat to national security. When people begin to follow Jesus because of Lazarus in verses 10 and 11, they say this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of his many of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See, many of the Jews were leaving their loyalty to the chief priests and following Jesus. He was a threat. In verse 19, after, uh, after John says in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign, the sign of raising Lazarus. We read this in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the, the world has gone after him. They're saying we've lost. We're getting nowhere. Jesus is winning the PR war here. The whole world has gone after him. They see Jesus' signs. They hear his teaching, but they see him as a threat. Do you see Jesus as a threat? Uh, Many people do today. Uh, Do you see Jesus as a threat to your freedom? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your sovereign self? Jesus, Christianity, religion, they they tell you, you, you are not in control. You can't do as you wish. What you say is not what is right. Your wish is not God's command. Your word is not law. Jesus rode into town as king. If you want to be king of your life, he is your rival. Is that the way you see Jesus? As a threat? Maybe. That's not the way you have to see Jesus. 
Is Jesus a wonder-working spectacle? No. Is he a nationalistic hero? No. Is he a bitter rival? He doesn't have to be. What about an enigmatic puzzle? The disciples don't understand. Uh, no, there's nothing new there. Uh, they see Jesus riding in on a donkey. They see the crowds waving branches. Uh, they, they probably have the same nationalistic understanding as the crowds. But John tells us in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things. Now, later Jesus will say in John 13, 7, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. In John 20, after the resurrection at the empty tomb, before they had seen Jesus, John tells us of Peter, and most likely himself, having come to the tomb in, in John 20, verse 9, and it says, as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. They still don't get it. Now, I don't know about you, but actually I find this really comforting because sometimes I don't get it either. Uh, maybe you don't get it. Maybe you are confused about who Jesus is. Maybe you've seen the, the, the Christian religion co-opted by so many people for so many agendas, and you're just not sure what it's all about anymore. And maybe you're ready to give up. You're ready to throw up your hands and say, it's all a mystery, it's too confusing, it's not worth my time. Or maybe you see Jesus as a puzzle to be solved in a different sense. You're interested in Christianity, but not really because of Christ, just because it's interesting. Seeing the connections between scriptures, understanding biblical spirituality, trying to piece together eschatological speculations. Maybe you study the scriptures obsessively because you fall into the trap Jesus talks about earlier in John, in John 5, when he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Is Jesus simply a wonder-working spectacle or a nationalistic hero or a bitter rival or an enigmatic puzzle to be solved? No, 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 and no. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who has been lifted up, who is drawing the nations to himself. When the Pharisees said to one another in verse 19, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is another instance of John's irony. They have no idea what they're saying. They think they are using hyperbole. The world, a lot of people have gone after him, but they are actually speaking ethnically. The world, not just Jew, but Gentile, has gone after him. The very next verse, we read of the Greeks in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are, are most likely Greek converts to Judaism, proselytes, God-fearers. Uh, these Greeks come to Philip because he is from a Greek-speaking multi-ethnic city, and so he speaks their language literally and culturally. So they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That line makes me want to weep with joy. That should be the cry of every human heart. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it's interesting that the, the rapid chain of events here, the Greeks go to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, and Philip and Andrew together go to Jesus. And there's a point to be made here, perhaps, about everyone having their role in bringing people to Jesus, working together to bring others to Christ. We're not actually told whether they ever do come to Jesus. Commentators speculate about these things, and I, I guess I'm about to as well. I think they must have gotten to see him. Because Jesus said earlier in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John doesn't record it, though, because it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this, the Gentiles are coming to Jesus. 
Jesus is not just the hope of Israel. He is the hope of the nations. And somehow for Jesus, this is his sign. Verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The coming of the Gentiles is some kind of a sign for Jesus. It told him that the time had come for him to be lifted up. Verse 32, and so draw all people, Jew and Greek, to himself. And notice how significant this is. All all throughout John, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not fully come. At least five times, Jesus says something like this. And now Jesus says, the hour has come. This is it. This is the turning point in the gospel of John. The hour has come for what? For the son of man to be glorified. Look back to verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remember that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Once Jesus is glorified, what do they understand once Jesus is glorified? They they understand the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was an entrance as a king. Well, yes, but it's got to be more than that because the crowds seem to know that already. What do they come to understand? They come to understand that Jesus did not just come as a king, humble and riding on a donkey. He came as a king, humble and and dying on a cross. Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says in verse 24, the very next thing, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now we're going to look uh, at the details of verses 23 through 33 next week, but notice a few things. First, Jesus says his glorification comes through his death. He is the grain of wheat that must fall to the earth and die. And this troubles him in verse 27, as it uh, should. But it is also why he came. This is the hour. Notice how he explains it in verses 31 to 33. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this, John says, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The world has gone after Jesus, right? Not just the nation of Israel, but the nations. The Greeks have come to see Jesus. He is going to draw all people to himself. That is all kinds of people to himself. When, how, when I am lifted up from the earth. Well, what does that mean? Uh, John's used that phrase before. John 3, 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. It's really a brilliant phrase for for John, lifted up, because lifted up can mean so many things. And I think John means them all. He tells us in verse 33 that this refers to Jesus' death. Jesus is lifted up on the cross in his death. But he is also lifted up from the grave in his resurrection. And he is lifted up from the earth in his ascension. And he is lifted up over all things in his being seated at God's right hand, exalted as king of heaven and earth. And in all these things, Jesus is lifted up and exalted. He is exalted in his death on the cross as Savior. He is exalted in his resurrection as the righteous one. He is exalted in his ascension as victor returning to the Father. And he is exalted in his being seated at God's right hand as king over all. And you see, apart from this, you cannot see Jesus rightly. You can see his signs and wonders. You can see his kingly persona You can see his kingly demands, but until you see Jesus' death and resurrection, you don't see Jesus for who he is. 
This is what makes sense of it all. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But how is Jesus exalted? By humbling himself. Jesus goes low to get high. He conquers by being conquered. He wins through defeat. He's exalted by humbling himself on the cross. And we know this, that for Jesus, death is the path to life, humiliation, the path to exaltation, because of the eighth sign in John's gospel, right? Jesus' eighth sign will be his own resurrection. Jesus himself calls it a sign when in John 2, after cleansing the temple, the people ask him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? And Jesus answers, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. John tells us Jesus is speaking of his rising from the dead. See, the great sign in John is not the raising of Lazarus, but the raising of Jesus. Not Jesus lifting up Lazarus, but Jesus being lifted up first on the cross and then in the resurrection. Some people seek signs, they seek power, but that is not the path of Jesus. He comes in weakness. Some seek nationalistic freedom, but that is not the path of Jesus. He comes for all peoples. Some seek their own purposes. For them, Jesus is a rival, a threat, an enemy. Some are just confused. They, they want to see Jesus. Well, if you would see Jesus, you must see him lifted up from the earth in the cross for our sins, in the resurrection, defeating death, in his ascension to the Father's right hand as king over all. And if you see that, then you'll also notice this. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, this is the way to follow him. He says, whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, as Jesus died for sin and so received glory, we must follow in his steps and lose our lives if we want to find them. What are you holding on to? What do you want Jesus for? Whatever that is has to go. Jesus doesn't want to be wanted for, he wants to be wanted. If you serve Jesus for, for a miracle, for a happy life, for a put together family, for mental stability, for health and wealth, for your nation, then you're not serving Jesus. You're serving those things. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. What are you holding on to? What do you want Jesus for? If you want to see Jesus for who he is, you've got to let everything else go. He is the king, come humble on a donkey. He is the king dying humble on the cross. He is the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies to bear much fruit. He is the lifted up Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus high and lifted up in the cross and in the resurrection and in his ascension to your right hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.